Welcome to episode two of the Clifftown podcast. My name is MG Bolter and I am a singer and songwriter from Southend-on-Sea in Essex. In April 2021, I will be releasing an album called Clifftown, which explores the themes and experiences from this part of the world here on the banks of the Thames Estuary in the United Kingdom. In the first episode, I explored some of the hidden histories of the area, something which is intrinsic to my songwriting. That theme of hidden stories continues somewhat in this episode, where I'll be looking at the tragic life of jazz pianist Mike Taylor, as well as delving into Southend's world-famous pub rock history. I finish with a walk in the woods with the artistic director of the country's largest free folk festival. Welcome to Clifftown. Southend-on-Sea and its immediate surroundings have a rich musical heritage. I grew up in a lively and burgeoning scene, where every night of the week was a music night in the cafes, bars and pubs. There are distinct and active reggae, metal, jazz, folk and shoegaze scenes here. But Southend is perhaps best known in the world for the pub rock scene of the 1970s, which nurtured the talents and careers of, most famously, Dr Feelgood, Eddie and the Hot Rods, the Kurzel Flyers, and many others. The legacy of this scene and these bands still held sway when I was sweating it out on the stages at the Grand and the Ship in Leon Sea, or the Railway Hotel in South End in the late 90s and early noughties. There was something honest about how these bands conducted themselves. They were successful, but still stayed true to their hometowns. A working class ethic mixed with artistic freedom. I caught up with Zoe Howe, author of a staggering amount of music biographies and novels. She is also a resident of Clifftown and wrote the essential book on Dr Feelgood's frontman, Lee Brillo. It's called Lee Brillo, Rock and Roll Gentleman, as well as collaborating with Wilco Johnson on his book, Looking Back at Me. I started by asking Zoe to define the term pub rock. Pub rock, um, it kind of grew in the early to mid-70s. It's a sort of grassroots thing um, and probably a bit of a reaction against glam rock and the sort of hippie movement and the kind of makeup, sparkly clothes and long hair. You know, pub rockers, they were stripping things back and they were stripping things away from all of that and, and getting down to these sort of dirty basics of rock and roll and R&B. Um, so it's kind of an unpre- unpretentious uh, move, I don't know if movement's the right word really, because I think that there were a lot of disparate bands um, doing their thing in small rooms in pubs um, before there was a, essentially a scene, as it were. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose, yeah, when you think of pub rock, you think unpretentious, you think kind of grassrootsy, DIY, so kind of. Um, a precursor to the punk thing that we can talk about in a minute, but but uh, a lot of the groups were quite high energy and dynamic, like Dr. Feelgood, of course, you know, very much uh, heroes of the South End scene. Um, or you get these kind of country rock influences. Um, and I think it's people like Mickey Jupp, for example, uh, just such a hero of mine. Um, and, and then you'd have bands like Kilburn and the High Roads, you know, Ian Dury, just, who just were not like anyone else at all. <laughs> kind of this ragtag, um, motley crew of characters. And they were drawing on jazz and, you know, Roland Kirk and, and Music Hall. And they had all these kind of 
really, really diverse influences feeding in. So uh, I suppose, you know, the pub rock thing, it, it does, it's, as I say, it's quite reductive because there were so many interesting bands that are very different to each other connected to it. Um, but I guess just literally physically bringing stuff back to the pubs just meant there was space to be whatever kind of misfit you really were and work with that rather than feel you had to dress up and be someone different or pander to what was fashionable at the time. I think a lot of people involved in the scene didn't really like the term pub rock. I know Wilco hates it. Um, and it, again, these things are usually just a sort of music journalist coining a term in order to just sort of lump lots of bands in because they just sort of happen to be doing it at the same time. Zoe's take on the nature of pub rock really resonated with me. That democratisation of music had lingered here in Southend, so that when I was starting out at the open mics and the Saturday evening bar band shifts, you were not just meeting musicians, but people with lives in the nine to five, with experiences that I could identify with. I was interested in Zoe's reference to pub rock being a precursor to punk, so I asked her to elaborate. So yes, yes, in terms of attitude um, and style in many respects I think you know a lot of a lot of people who I because I've written a lot about punk in fact that's how I started and then I kind of went back and started looking at pub rock you know the feel good specifically um, but uh, what was interesting was a lot of the punky people that I'd worked with um, said oh Dr Feelgood fantastic that, that it was seeing them that made me cut my hair so actually it was it, you know they they were the ones planting these seeds of you know get rid of the kind of droopy hippie <laughs> thing sharpen mm. things up and 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 inject a bit of energy into what you're doing and the feel goods were just ferocious and i think they really lit a fire under a lot of people who would then go on to be heroes of the punk scene if that's not a kind of a, a, a you know a contradiction in terms because obviously we don't like heroes but you know pioneers and um and and yeah icons of the of the punk thing um so that was really influential i think um but of course there were other bands within it who you know you couldn't really equate with punk at all they were just doing their thing but i think if you look at the true essence of punk which i suppose means different things to different people but to me that means very much going your own way, not really caring what anybody else does or thinks uh, or is going to say to you about that, um, then I would say they were, yeah, they were all had that attitude. It was like, yeah, never mind what's fashionable. I'm going to do what I want. And that's what the Feel Goods did. They were playing 60s R&B, essentially. Um, you know, uh, they, they, <laughs> they weren't sort of really interested in kind of being in the pop charts or they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. And it just clicked with people. And at the same time, you have that kind of, I can see punk attitude and how they conducted themselves when they became quite successful and all the music papers wanted to interview them and most bands would be like okay well it's time to move in move to London now and they were like no we're staying on Canvey if they you know they can come to us and they did a quick geographical note for those who may not know Canvey Island is an island that sits in the Thames estuary just off the coast of South End I love it it's another worldly place and I've included a bit more of Zoe's thoughts on the island in a bonus episode. But back to our discussion here, Zoe began to circle back on the importance of Southend as a place to the music scene of that time. 
Yeah, the South Endy thing I think is really important. It not just because obviously well the field was Canvey essentially they were a Canvey band, um, but very much heroes of of South End and the surrounding area. And I think something that Lee actually touched on himself in an interview a long time ago, that that really kind of chimed with me was the sense that the sense of theatre and the sense that South End and Canvey also have that sense of theatre. There's something there's something characterful about these places and, and you've got the arcades and you've got the amusements and you've got it's a place where you know back in the 60s you, you'd hear a lot of rock and roll just being in those places you know you wouldn't have to go to a, to a club or a pub you know it's being it's just beaming out it's quite rock and roll in itself and you're also talking about the kind of places that people come to for a day out or a dirty weekend or in a bit of fun or a little holiday those are these are good time places south end is a good time place and south end and can be kind of rose to that need to be entertained and to be shown a different side of life that's a bit more colorful and a bit raunchy and fun and almost theatrically seedy but and you, and you kind of see that reflected in the feel goods i think one thing that's really interesting because when i well i've written a book with wilco and also the book about lee brillo and and talking to uh, the guys and the people around them and, and all the rest of it about this whole thing and one of the things that obviously is great about pub rock is it's very stripped back and it's very real and it's quite it's got this honesty and it's a bit sort of dirty and you know it's kind of great and lovely and wholesome as well it's something kind of like yeah this is substantial this is like a proper meal you know glam rock is like I don't know sweeties in comparison <laughs> but but with but that is to sort of somehow also denigrate uh, or, or underestimate maybe that's a better word um the sense of theater that Dr. Feelgood had. Cops and robbers, as Wilco Johnson says, you know, and they were having fun with it. Um, and I think that's one of the things I love about the Feelgoods and, and Lee Brillo um, is because um, he could be all these things at the same time. He was quite, you know, he was a bit of a tough geezer, but he was also quite literary and he was also um, an autodidact and he was into history and he was into the finer things and I think the thing about Leah and the guys you know is they proved you could be all of these things at the same time and there's a lot of binary thinking around I think you know uh, people from working class areas um, it's like well if you're this you can't be that and and that comes from external forces and internally as well and I think people like Lee just blew that away and said no I can be all of these things and you know so can you you can we can educate ourselves and be into all these things nothing's not allowed for us we can do whatever we want um, and that is very inspiring as well I find the pub rock story inspiring as a musician, people being creative on their own terms, but also on a human level, that sense of place and mission. I asked Zoe why some of these more successful bands stayed in the area and how that affected their relationships with the local community. What we were saying before, a sort of connection with with the people, uh, with the people who are around you when you're growing your thing, when you're starting out, when you're rehearsing, when you're trying stuff out. Um, this sort of this this connection, this thread that just stays there and a real respect for that. And that, you know, really came across when I was doing research and interviews for, for the, the Feel Goods books and, and you know, the Lee book um, in, in particular, um, talking about how 
the feel goods even when they were they were you know pretty famous they were, they were still on canvey and they drink at the admiral jellico um and you know they you know everyone would get around and they'd be very down to earth and they 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 they'd be interested in what you were doing you know and i think that's something that a lot of people seem to really remember about about the feel goods was was this sort of uh, humility um and and a, it wasn't them being starry and it wasn't about being flash it was about um you know giving back to to the people who'd supported you as you were coming up and uh you know unfortunately as always there's always going to be a bit of an inverted snobbery and there was always going to be people who were like oh you know they, they couldn't win you know so if they bought everyone a drink they were flash bastards if they didn't they were mean but you know so there, there was starting to be that thing where you know some people didn't quite know how to deal with it um their fame so i think that kind of did lead to certainly lee and wilco uh moving to the mainland um <laughs> but they never went far and they and they always retained their their love for canvey i mean they were just 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 sort of you know in intrinsically connected to it you know as what figure in sparko sparko still lives there i believe um and so i think that that was something i suppose that really kind of came through to me as a as a thread and a theme um just this this strong connection to the people who got you where you are and are keeping you there and supporting you when maybe you're not in fashion anymore and just this deep appreciation for them and certainly to quote lee or paraphrase lee you know a real sense that this is who it's for this is what it's all for it's for people you know there's nothing else there's it's all about giving people a good time and the way he talked about the music was almost like it was a kind of public health service you know it was like we've got to do this it doesn't matter if there's five people in the audience we've got to do this because if it means that those people get two hours out of it maybe a difficult day um and we take them out of that and we give them a good time then that's what it's all about and i just think that was such a brilliant attitude um, and it's quite poignant talking about that now, especially because, of course, we can't we don't have gigs right now. They will come back, as we were saying earlier. But, um, you know, I don't I, I do often wonder what Lee would have made of all this and how he would uh, cope with it. I could have talked to Zoe all afternoon. Her knowledge about music is encyclopedic. And if you ever get the chance to go to one of her book signings or talks, I would highly recommend it. Her book, Lee Brillo, Rock and Roll Gentleman, is a must read for any music fan. And if I get the time, I will produce a bonus episode featuring Zoe talking a little bit more about the man himself. Before saying goodbye, I did put Zoe on the spot and asked her to name her top three pub rock bands of all time. So here's the countdown. Well, Dr. Philby, yes, obviously at the top. <laughs> and then I would have to say Mickey Jupp. Um, Mickey Jupp is criminally underrated, in my opinion. Um, I, I think a lot of these guys are, you know, really, really supremely talented songwriter. Uh, I mean, John Lennon was a fan of Mickey Jupp's. You know, he his reach was far and wide. Uh, he was very, he's a very private person. So he's, um, you know, he would relate to what you're saying now as, you know, the, you know, the, the kind of a resistance to sort of the whole, the way things have gone, I guess, very corporate. He was just the antithesis of all of that, very much so. And my third favourite pub rock act has to be Kilburn and the High Roads or just Ian Dury generally. Ian, I'm cheating now, so I'm <laughs> Ian Dury, Kilburn and the High Roads and the Blockheads. <laughs> um, just such special groups and they've just got that kind of misfit magic um, combined with real musicianship you know really really incredible musicianship um it's just such such special in fact I, in fact i think i need to make them number one sorry everybody i'm 
<laughs> I'm not very good at ranking things. We've all become such rankers these days. But uh, yeah, no, Ian Jury and the Blockheads, very special, very close to our hearts as well in the Howe household. Of course, Dylan, um, Dylan Howe, my husband, uh, was a drummer in the Blockheads for about 13 years of his life. So uh, very, very special to us. And um, he worked with Ian in the last few years of his life, actually. So, um, you know, and I always loved the Blockheads anyway, to be honest. They're just so special, uh, brilliant, very groovy. The funky uncles, we used to call them. Um, and on that note, I should tell you as well, there is something to plug. <laughs> uh, there's a... a um, I'm very privileged to be involved with an exhibition, a group show by the Thames Group of Artists called All Kinds of Naughty. And it's inspired, it's artwork inspired by the work of Ian Dury and the lyrics of Ian Dury. Um, and uh, Peter Nock, the local artist Peter Nock is involved, Tad Blower, um, it's, it's uh, helmed by Tad and Charles Sharman Cox. Um, and who else is involved? Will Birch is involved, who's uh, who wrote a fantastic biography of Ian Dury. Um, and there are also many associates of Ian's involved as well. Jemima Dury, his daughter, has um, um, contributed a piece of Ian's. Um, there's something, some work by Sir Peter Blake, Sophie Dury as well, uh, Rod Melvin. I think Humphrey Ocean is involved. So it's very exciting. I was supposed to open it last year. Um, of course, 2020 was the year of COVID, so nothing really happened at all from that point of view. So we're, we're things are kind of cranking back into life this March, um, and we're going to be touring the exhibition. But it opens at Stash Gallery, which is Sophie Parkins Gallery. Um, in Tower Hill so it's very exciting all very very much looking forward to to getting on with that my piece is inspired by a lyric from Plasto Patricia but perhaps not the most obvious one um Ian Dury and the Blockheads fans will will know what I mean by that but no it's not that one <laughs> you'll have to come to the show to find out so um, but yeah all kinds of naughty and if people want to find out more about that um look up the Thames group of artists on the internet and you'll find out more uh, details. Dark night in the cellar of your soul Drinking at the bar and drinking alone I track your traces and I walk down your street Midnight movies, these lies that I keep Unless you're into jazz music, you probably won't have heard of the talented, mercurial and ultimately tragic story of pianist and composer Mike Taylor. Born in London in 1938, he drowned in the creek behind Leon C Station, his body found on the 19th of January 1969. He was fully clothed, wearing two pairs of white vests and two pairs of trousers, with some pound notes stuffed in his pocket. In his short life, he produced two highly regarded, one could say revered albums, Pendulum in 1965 and the Mike Taylor Trio in 1966. 
He played the support slot for Ornette Coleman's legendary show at Croydon's Fairfield Hall in 1965. And he co-wrote three songs off Cream's famous Wheels of Fire album from 1968. I'm not knowledgeable about jazz in the slightest, but Taylor is spoken of in hallowed terms among my jazz friends. He played with London jazz luminaries such as Ron Rubin, Dave Tomlin, Jack Bruce, John Heisman, Ginger Baker and Tony Reeves. It is also well documented that his use of LSD and other drugs potentially aggravated an underlying psychosis, which led to a spell in jail, homelessness and debatably his own death. On the internet he is referred to as the Sid Barrett of jazz. This musician and his sad tale hooked my interest. There are a lot of signs saying that I should pursue this story for the podcast. First, a long-lost live recording from 1964 or 1965 had been recently uncovered of Mike playing the Studio Jazz Club in Westcliff-on-Sea, which is a suburb of Southend, and it was imminently going to be released on a record label called Jazz in Britain. And the second... Southend is home to the Jazz Centre UK, a national resource of jazz memorabilia, heritage, a 7,000-strong record archive, and a venue where jazz musicians of all disciplines perform at weekend showcases. I had a lot to do, and a lot of people to talk to, to find out more. As fate had it, I had started researching this story for the podcast in January 2021, and the 19th of January marked 52 years to the day Mike's body was sadly found in the creek. That night I grabbed my recorder and headed to the scene. So I'm, I'm standing just behind Leon Stee uh, station um, where Mike Taylor's uh, body was supposedly found on this day, on the 19th of January in 1969. I'm here exactly 52 years later in 2021 uh, on the 19th of January. It's, it's very quiet um, because of the Covid there's very few people on the platforms at the train station um, behind me um, and just in the foreground we have the low-lying salt marsh of the Thames estuary. Uh, the tide is currently out so you can just about see the creeks and the, the small boats nestling on the, um, on the grass that grows on the marsh. In the distance you can see Southend Pier and um, Old Lee all lit up. Uh, it's obviously very dark because <laughs> it's in the middle of winter. Um, I mean, normally this is a really nice picturesque place to stand and, and look out onto, onto the estuary but knowing that his body was found here somewhere among these creeks I kind of there's a sort of a melancholy about it tonight the tide is very placid here it comes in very silently and very quickly and this marshland is is usually covered up within minutes of the tide coming in sad to think that he was found here. So quiet and peaceful around here.
I felt out of my depth in trying to understand Mike Taylor's importance and role in British jazz. So I fired off an email to the Chief Executive Officer and Trustee of the Jazz Centre UK in Southend, one Mark Cass. Mark is a really busy man who runs the Hive Enterprise Centre in the Beecroft Art Gallery on top of his Jazz Centre duties. He was really generous in giving me his time late one Saturday evening. Over a Zoom call, I first asked him to confirm if my take on Mike's career was correct and to comment on Mike's tragic death. Mike Taylor is one of these guys who nobody's really heard of um, unless you start digging deep. And two ways you could describe Mike, Mike Taylor is the Sid Barrett of jazz or the Peter Green of jazz. So they were the guys there uh, quite early on, a little bit avant-garde, just on the edge, but they were quite formative in what they did. So, so Mike, for example, Mike... Um, Hooked up with John Heisman, uh, drummer, went on to form Coliseum. Um, he hooked up with Tony Reeve, the bass player, Dave Tomlin, the sax player. But interestingly, collaborated with Jack Bruce uh, of Cream fame and went on to write three tracks for, for Cream um, and featured on their albums. So Mike was, a pretty, was pretty influential in his own way, but he was all part of that that mass of what was coming out from the John Mayall and the Blues Breakers and the Graham Bond organisation and all that stuff where it's almost like this unofficial collective of people that existed around that time um, that largely probably span out as a direct result of the Beatles turning around and suddenly going all avant-garde and weird and everybody thinking, actually, now's a good time to break away from all the other genres. So, so Mike has sort of adopted that that sort of uh, more modal approach to jazz, that sort of quasi avant-garde stuff, and much more free jazz. So it became quite influential in in the circuit around there. Um, but as I say, he, he produced two albums um, with John, uh, again with uh, Jack, one with Jack Bruce playing, and one with um, uh, and both with John. Heisman playing on them, uh, Pendulum and Trio, I think the two albums are called. Um, but the sort of the legend suddenly reawoke itself when unfortunately Mike killed himself. Um, and there's a sort of a deep dark story about how he sort of took to drugs and alcohol and did the, pretty much the Peter Green thing, pretty much the uh, the uh, the Sid Barrett thing, and it sort of kind of pushed him over the edge. I think likelihood is probably LSD involved um, in a really big way because that was the time that Mike was around in the sort of late sixties, early seventies. And sadly, he walked out to sea apparently in Leon Sea and, and drowned himself. I don't think anybody's going to really know that his body was found out at sea. So. Whether he fell off a boat because he was drunk, whether he walked out to sea, but I think it was the sex and drugs and rock and roll lifestyle that existed in those times, except it wasn't rock and roll, it was jazz. Um, and the poor man decided enough's enough and it was gone, but I think it was declared as officially a suicide. I had a lot more questions to ask Mark. I wanted to delve into the story of Mike's gig in Westcliff back in the 1960s. I'd heard rumours that there'd been some sort of trouble at the gig, a fight perhaps. Renowned jazz performer, broadcaster 
a much-loved Clifftown resident, Digby Fairweather, had supposedly been at the show. I sent out some feelers among my friends about getting in touch with Digby. I sent him an email, an obligatory Facebook request, and awaited to see if he responded. In the interim, I asked Mark about the Jazz Centre UK and what projects he and his volunteers were working on for post-lockdown. Um, National Jazz Archive was set up in Loughton, further down the A127 in, in, in Loughton, by Digby Fairweather, the trumpeter, broadcaster, author. Um, and throughout the Jazz Archive, it was all about collecting papers, documents, posters, newspapers, that kind of thing. And then Digby realised actually there was an opportunity for a sort of jazz ephemera, um, some really valuable stuff that we could display. And we didn't really have the room down at uh, the National Jazz Archive in, in Loughton. Um, so a bit of hard grafting, as it always is, he sort of negotiated and managed to find um, 2,500 square feet in the basement of the Beecroft Art Gallery in Victoria Avenue, which is a spectacular building in its own right. It's like a brutalist um, heritage building. Um, I suppose, look at it like the Barbican. Um, it's Barbican on Sea, I like to call it. And it's just turned into this unique cultural centre, visitor attraction for, for jazz music in the UK. 100% um, volunteer-led. Uh, we've got nine very, very passionate trustees with love of jazz across the whole spectrum of jazz. Um, and it, it's just, I, I, as I keep saying, it's a unique thing, but nothing else exists like this at the moment in the UK. And we were fortunate enough to secure some funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund to allow us to not quite replicate, but to represent in a very creative way the, the history of jazz through the 100 Club. And we're currently building that set and th that story as we speak, ready to, ready to go for when we reopen, whenever that might be. in my hands with tiny magic pictures of pie. Camera came alive two years after you set it down to sleep with your It was great to catch up with Mark, and while waiting to see if Digby himself would respond to my inquiries about the Mike Taylor gig, I took it upon myself to visit the building where the Studio Jazz Club had been all those years ago. I'm sitting in my car in Westcliff-on-Sea train station car park and across the road uh, is the building that used to house the Studio Jazz Club where Mike Taylor played in 1964 or 1965. Uh, it's a pretty run-down area um, really close to the seaside or South End Seafront. It's a big white building and with black trim, black window sills and door um, and on the front emblazoned in big plastic lettering other words absolute performing arts school i did go over and have a quick look um, closer look and on the front now are some um, glass cabinets with some tired looking photographs of girls in ballet uh, costumes and on stages doing various forms of contemporary and jazz dance uh, the lights are on so I'm not sure if anyone's in there or not. 
next door is a funeral home uh, and and uh, news agents and on the other side is a is some sort of house and a and an empty and vacant Chinese takeaway what used to be a Chinese takeaway again it's it's a Monday night it's very quiet uh, the train station would usually be really busy at this time of night uh, with commuters but with the pandemic um, it's an awful lot quieter there's not many people around the odd person going into the news agent the building looks very grand it certainly stands out in this this row of buildings it, it definitely has a has a thing about it and, and being right opposite the train station I imagine in its heyday would have been a really good place to to do gigs and, and hold parties and various functions people could have just jumped off the train in a minute they would have been through those doors no doubt in the 1960s in that smoky atmosphere people gathering to watch jazz folk or maybe just to go dancing the victim was right the judge us from great heights so why toss the stone when the glass is already not long after, an email arrived from Digby Fairweather. Okay, so I've got an email here from Digby Fairweather, um, which I've printed out. He's, he's heard about my inquiries about the Mike Taylor show, um, and he's written me this really lovely email, which I'm going to read out for you now. Dear Matthew, he starts, How interesting and many thanks to you. I have just a little to add. From autumn 1962, I was a regular Friday nighter at the Westcliff Jazz Club, called Studio Jazz, at the corner of Shawfields Road, where I often led the intermission band, and then he jokingly adds, usually to an empty house, as the audience would disappear up the road to the nearby Queen's Hotel to buy drinks. The studio, like many jazz clubs back then, was unlicensed. The main act of the evening was tenorist Kenny Baxter's excellent South End Modern Jazz Quintet, whose members included the brilliant young trumpeter Vic Wood, certainly one of the best trumpeters I've ever heard who died far too early, pianist Norman Coker, bassist Eddie Johnson, both still alive, and Pat Green on drums. They played the bebop repertoire of the time, things like Vals Hot, Porky by Cannonball Orderly, I think, and Work Song. And Kenny also brought to the club regular star guests, including Jimmy Skidmore, Kathy Stobart, Don Rendell, and the young Ray Worley and lots more. And then he goes on to talk about the, the Mike Taylor show, which is really exciting. One night, I remember vividly, we were invaded by four musicians who were new to us. They turned out to be Mike Taylor, Dave Tomlin, Jack Bruce and John Heisman, and apparently, without asking anyone, they took over the stand and played a complete set of what seemed to be near-free jazz. Nothing like the standard bebop repertoire of Kenny and his band. I remember that the quartet was very loud, at least for those times, and looking back I'm sure they were serving up similar musical fare to the Coltrane My Favourite Things format. The album had been issued a year or so before in 1961. And then it, then it gets really, um, really racy. But to most of the audience back then it seemed quite revolutionary, 
and frankly upsetting and caused a sensation. Quite a lot of outrage to the discomforted bebop lovers who came to the club and what could almost have passed, at least in South End, to a small riot. Years later I told the story to the late John Heisman and he said, Oh, I remember that night very well. I wish I'd asked him for more details, but if I did, sadly, they've escaped my memory. Wow, that, that's really interesting. Really adds colour to the story. And, and Digby goes on. And this is a, a fantastic paragraph. and I, I never knew this, so um, this, this was, came as quite a shock to me as well. Um, but he adds something here. A few years later, when my father was working as a civilian crime photographer for South NCID, he told me that there's been a body washed up on the beach at Leon C. And he said, I think you might know about him, as he seems to have been a jazz musician. So could you come and identify him? I did so, and while the photographs were of no help, of course, I recognised the name Michael or Mike Taylor. The version of the story told to me was that he had walked into the sea at Lee and drowned himself. But that's only the report of the local officers. Other wiser men than I, including the late Ron Rubin, would be more likely to have had the correct story. Wow, that sounds sounds quite sort of um, mysterious. I, I wonder what, what that means. Mike's album Pendulum, um, Digby finishes with, um, like many others of that period, fetches quite high price nowadays. Discogs has a copy for the relatively modest sum of £66 at the moment. It's interesting that 50% of the album's titles are actually well-worn standards, including But Not For Me, Exactly Like You and A Night In Tunisia. Certainly not what I remember hearing at the time, um, but I was only 16, he then adds. Um, and then he says, good luck with the research. Mark Cass again. I think what happened again, the like with, with most music groups, you can tell by like, the skinheads and the punks and the rock and rollers, there was that sort of division that sort of kind of vaguely existed within the world of jazz as well. So you had all the, the traditional jazz, the trad jazz guys, the, the swing type uh, jazz musicians that were playing, we've been playing for years, Humphrey Littleton's, Digby Fairweathers, all playing live. But then you had this new group of like the Mike Taylors and the, the Jack Bruce's that decided they were going to come in and just do the free jazz thing. And uh, one day they breezed in, they're probably bigger and taller and probably at the time more sober than anybody else in the pub and said, no, we're going up on stage, picked up their instruments and played what would only have been described, I think I've seen described as just pure noise. Um, so it was quite brutally accepted or not accepted by, by the audiences and the existing band that were due to play. And before you know it, there was, um, from what I can gather, there was a scuffling of chairs. Now, a scuffling of chairs probably means thrown physically across the room with somebody on them. But, um, and that's what happened. So, and I think that probably happened on more than one occasion, but in, I know for a fact that there were, there were literally, there were punch-ups on the streets all over the country uh, with the, the modern jazz group against the traditional jazz group. So they were not quite your mods and rockers on Brighton Beach. This was posh punch-ups in a pub in South End.
dwelling more on the present might be a good way to end this episode. One of the biggest musical events in Clifftown's calendar is the Lee Folk Festival. Paul Collier is the artistic director of that festival. Paul is responsible for booking all the artists for the long weekend in June when the town is rammed with festival goers and hundreds of musical acts playing every conceivable venue. One of Paul's favourite haunts is Belfair's and Hadley Greatwood, which are ancient woodlands that surround the town on one side. During the first lockdown summer of 2020, Paul would invite me for walks in the wood to find the rare heath fritillary butterflies which make this woodland their home. It seemed apt to bring Paul back here on a dank October Sunday to talk about the festival. The main, the main two days of the weekend days are Saturday and the Sunday. The, and the Saturday is focused on Lee Library Gardens and it's very much that's a nice family-friendly space, mm, very enclosed. Uh, we use the entire gardens, the lower and up, the upper section these days. Lots of stalls and concessions, food, foodie stalls. Um, but it's very much a family day, I would say, that one. Um, whereas the second day, the Sunday, is in Lee Old Town which is sort of down the hill on the waterfront area, for those who aren't familiar with the area. Mm. Um, and it's, it's more of a street festival. Um, it's big, long, cobbled high street, uh, and we basically take over the whole thing. We've been going for uh, nearly 30 years. So, um, and I mean, I was involved in the first one as a performer, but people say, oh, what was the first one like? And I, frankly, I don't remember. I mean, it was just another gig, really. Um, was that with the famous uh, potatoes? With the famous potatoes, which is the band I've been involved with since 1982. South Ends um, Hawkwind, I think you could... Uh, oh, yeah, well, yeah. The, 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 yeah, I, 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 I can't think of anything, a band further from what we do, <laughs> our ethos, really. But, you know, uh, yes, we, we, we've certainly got their longevity, if nothing else. <laughs> but... Uh, um, so I got involved in the early noughties, um, 2003, four, something like that. And originally I was, I said, well, I can, I can do a bit of press for you or something like that. From those humble origins, Paul has helped develop the festival into something quite singular and progressive. And if you visit, you're sure to find an eclectic mix of music, traditional folk rubbing shoulders with experimental music. I couldn't resist asking Paul what his highlights had been through all the years booking for the festival. What have been your greatest successes? Which which acts you've been standing there thinking, God, I've done a really good one here. And also, I think, some of the ones where you maybe had your head in your hands. Not to embarrass anyone, obviously. Well, I, I, I would say I, I'm not... Entirely, I'm not responsible for booking every every single act that mm. appears at the festival. There's certain stages that I will deal with in venues, but I do subcontract things out to other people. I mean, you have been one of my um, co-organisers on occasion, Matt. You know, you've you've organised little programmes in um, ve- you know, s- several venues, I think, haven't you? Over, yes, over, yeah, over yeah. the years, I've enjoyed it greatly. Because um, well. you're a trusted pair of hands, <laughs> you know, and I know things that you you will bring in will be things that I'm not familiar with and that's the whole point of involving other people is that everybody's going to have a slightly different take I mean I just try and you know hold the hold the ship in the middle really if you like and um, you know, certain things I, I will book but uh, um, but you going back to your question um, things I've really enjoyed well you know I, I it's the off the wall stuff that I I really get I mean there was one occasion uh, as an act called the Dead Rat Orchestra I don't know if you you, you remember them 
three guys basically, and uh, they they were doing a work song. Um, this was in, this was in the days when we used to use the Scout Hut, the Clarendon Scout Hut, and you know that was one of my favourite venues in many respects. Although it was a nightmare from management crowd management point of view. Um, and the hottest venue. And probably the hottest venue. The hottest yeah, venue, I think, in yeah. the summer. But the, they were basically, but they were actually chopping up a a large log with an axe as part of their act <laughs> in the front while they were sort of chanting and and and. and I, I just happened on this. I just looked in through the door and, you know, the look of terror on some people's places because there were bits of wood flying all around the place. I thought, from a health and safety point of view, this is a complete nightmare. But, you know, it was just... There were people coming out, walking out <laughs> with perplexed expressions on their face and I thought, yes, yes, I've this is it. what I'm trying to do. Um, another thing in there on another occasion was... Um, uh, we had a puppet show which was uh, called Galoshans based on a Scottish folk play, uh, a bit like a Scottish version of a mummer's play or a mystery play, but done, done in the medium of puppetry. Um, and Alistair Roberts, who's a great, um, been a great supporter of the festival over the years and you know, has appeared many, many times, was involved in this as well as a sort of co-puppeteer with uh, his friend Shane, who was the main puppeteer. And it, it was hysterically funny uh, as well. And, you know, there are people actually sort of tears rolling down their faces with laughter in this thing. I thought, oh, this is just, just wonderful, you know. What I hope from the festival is that people come with open ears um, and discover things that they didn't know they liked, as well as things they do like. Um, we're very broad church, you know, we, we cover all bases, so check your prejudices in at the door. And um, uh, we, we are in South Essex on the Thames Estuary, only an hour from London on the train, less than an hour in fact. Um, and uh, so very, quite accessible and uh, beautiful part of the country. Come and discover us. This episode was hard to make. Mark Cass said during our chat that this area means so much to so many different musical scenes and I hope I've reflected some of that rich variety here. I want to thank Zoe Howe, Mark Cass, Digby Fairweather and Paul Collier so, so much for taking their time out to speak to me. And I wish them well with all their forthcoming projects. I must also thank Barry Sinclair, Brian Stiles and Adrian Green who answered questions in the background and pointed me in the right direction. Thanks also to everyone who's commented and suggested topics to cover they've been invaluable and if you are enjoying this podcast feel free to like subscribe and share next episode we head to the lifeboats see you next time in clifftown there are songs